Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now in the wonderful name of Jesus. And Lord, we just ask that you would speak to us. That you would transform lives, O God. That you draw us to yourself. In the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. What I want to look at is the hound of heaven. And actually, in the midst of this uh, message, we're going to look at a, at a poem called The Hound of Heaven. I'll deal with that in just a couple of moments. Uh, that was written in uh, 1906 or 1907. And uh, the guy was an obscure poet that it wasn't until after he died that his uh, poetry became known, especially this poem here that became famous and basically kind of coined the word or the phrase, the hound of heaven, that's used often or at least occasionally. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 14, Jesus says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. This is the heart of God. Jesus is God incarnate, of course, but he's sharing the heart of God. He's sharing the reality of the motivation of heaven and what that was all about coming to this planet, why he came to earth. And so when you look at the reality of mankind, the history of mankind, and you know, to try and make this so simple, put it in such a, a little nutshell, God created mankind to walk with them in fellowship, to know Him in, in sweet fellowship, in, in the garden fellowship. That's what it was all about, to walk with Him day by day by day. But sin entered, and when sin entered, that fellowship was broke. From the moment it was broke, but yet we could even go beyond that. We could go before creation even came to existence. God already had a plan set in motion on how to redeem mankind. But yet as God is striving to bring the truth to people, people are wandering from Him more and more. And you see that in the, in the book of Genesis when people just began to wander from Him so much so that God had to bring an end to it with the flood, right? They became so wicked. And when you look at the wickedness of, of the people in the days of Noah, that wickedness was all about living a life without God. It wasn't necessarily a life of sensuality. It could have been there. But Jesus went and says that they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving a marriage until the day that the flood came. It wasn't the aspect that they were practicing all these vile sins, but they practiced the worst of all sins, which was, I don't want you, God. I don't want you in my life. I don't want you anywhere. I want to live my own life. They could go on with life without God. And so God destroyed the earth with a flood and through Noah and his family, began to repopulate it. But mankind just, does, just doesn't learn. And so what do they do? It's not long before, again, they're back in the same kind of rebellion and all the stuff that goes on. And then out of it, God goes and calls this obscure people through a, a particular man, Abraham, that through him is going to be this, this people that is going to be the people of God. And they are to be a people that are to demonstrate the reality of who this God is to a perishing world. But guess what? From the seed of Abraham came the people of Israel, and Israel was a failure. They failed again and again. They failed not to be the people of God. They mingled with their worship of Jehovah, all these pagan idols and all these religious ideas and 
it just became so obscured. And again, the desire of God for a people to be separated unto Him was lost because of mankind's rebellion and refusal to submit to Him. And so it didn't change. You understand, God, had de- God destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians, and 150 years later, He destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah and took them into captivity. Seventy years captivity. Seventy years captivity until they're allowed to come back to their own land. And yet, even when they come back into their own land, they get back into idolatry again. And they have to be rebuked again until finally there's a place where you see in Israel they are done with idols. You, you see it's, it's basically eradicated. And even into the days of Jesus, the idolatry of images, of literal images, was, was eradicated. You don't see it in Israel. But what do you see? A new kind of idol come up, the idol of religion. This dead religion, this legalistic idea of do's and don'ts. Not that there isn't do's and don'ts with the true gospel. But they kept wandering. So what happens? Here's this God who cared so much for mankind. And I just, I, all I, I can tell you that He loves us, but I can't tell you why. It's who He is. It's His choice that He chose to put His affection on us. And so He cared. And so He became human. He took upon flesh and blood that He could take the penalty of our sins, the crimes that we have committed, and He would take them as His own and pay the penalty that we deserve. And because of who He is and because of the, the sinlessness of who He is, what He did was an eternal work. Once and for all, He accomplished the salvation for mankind, that people could be saved. And yet even in that, they continued to rebel. Right into our day. When you look at the final day, when Jesus comes back, guess what? The world is going to be in such obstinate, consistent, persistent rebellion. That is what's going to partially bring back His his coming. Mankind continuing the same rebellion that began in the garden and continued all the way through to the final end because they refused to understand But yet, in the midst of it, here's this shepherd, this God, that is seeking after those who want His salvation. See, that's a huge thing. It's those who want His salvation. He'll save any that wants salvation. Those who don't want salvation, He will leave them to themselves. But He is seeking, and that's the whole picture of the hound of heaven. This God that is seeking, pursuing mankind. He is active in His creation more than we can ever even fathom. The busyness of God is beyond our our comprehension where He is working and laboring. And even in our own lives before we became Christians, there was the activity of God in ways we can't even see today. Even as being followers of Jesus, we can't comprehend how much He was working and laboring behind the scenes in in our hearts and circumstances to bring us to the foot of the cross. This God that desired us, this God that pursued us. This poem... The hound of heaven is 182 lines. And it comes out of a man that understood the hound of heaven and his pursuit. I mean, this is what comes out in this poem is what I believe that God did in inspiring an unsaved man that was fighting against God inspiring him to write down the pursuit of God towards him, 
And the, 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 the picture that he brings out is so graphic and so intense of this God that pursues. It begins, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the mist of tears. I hid from him an underrunning laughter. Up this is hope I sped and shot down titanic glooms of chasm fears. From the strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic urgency, they beat, and a voice beat, more insistent than the feet, all things betray thee who betrays me. And so here's a picture of this God that is pursuing this man, and this man is trying to get away from this God trying to get away from him, and yet that hound is at his heels. He's right there. He could overtake him in a moment, but he is pacing himself. And as he's pacing behind this, this man, this woman that is running from him, he is crying out, he is pleading, he's appealing to them. And bringing the truth, all things betray thee who betrays me. This good world that He has put us in betrays us if we betray Him. The good things that He's given us in life betray us whenever we betray Him. So we look to the things of this life to satisfy what cannot satisfy, and He removes all the good that would come out of it because we look for something else other than Him. So we look for happiness in all this host of ways, all these particular ways we seek after happiness. We want peace, and we seek ways to have peace. None of it, none of it comes to us. None of us experienced it. Before I was a Christian in the drug culture, you look for this escape through drugs and everything else. Guess what? It could not give peace. There was no peace. Not in a blown away mind. There was no peace. That torment of soul was still there. This God that was pursuing was still there, though I didn't know and I didn't comprehend the voice that was behind me, compelling me, calling me to the place of surrender. I didn't comprehend what he was doing. The hound of heaven is in hot pursuit of his prey. Hot pursuit. You may have a child that's gone astray. You may have a grandchild that's gone astray. You may have you may have a friend or parent or whoever, somebody that you know has gone astray, and you look at their life right now and you say, I've tried to minister them, and they just it gets nowhere. But you've got to understand the hound of heaven hasn't stopped. Because you may not see what's going on, because you may not comprehend what's going on in their heart when they go to bed at night. What's in their mind? There's a God that pursues them, pursues them even in their dreams, that He might bring them to the place of the cross. Because that's what He's all about. The hound of heaven is pursuing people to bring them to Calvary, to bring them to the place of salvation, because He loves them. Because He cares for mankind. You see, God's pursuit of mankind began, like I said earlier, before creation even came into existence. The plan was there. And I don't understand, I don't, this just literally complete, this blows my mind. That this God, before He created, before He created mankind, He knew that He'd have to go to Calvary. And yet He still created mankind. Knowing that they would rebel, knowing that they would rebel against him again and again and again. And yet he created because he was looking for those who would truly become a people of God. Created them. 
though he'd know he'd have to suffer the agony of the cross. And you know, the agony of the cross is not really what he suffered physically. The agony of the cross is something that you and I can't even comprehend. It is beyond our ability to even fathom, though we have tasted of it a little bit. What he experienced within the Trinity, I mean, this just hurts my brain to even try and think about this. That the Father rejected the Son. Rejected the Son. Never had there been such a thing, a separation between Father and Son. How could it be within the Trinity? I don't even come. I can't even explain it. There's no theology that can really bring that out. We may speak of its reality. We may say, this is what the Word teaches, but yet I can't understand it. But yet I have known in my own way what it is to be separated from God. I've known in my own way what it is to have my sin upon my shoulders and the weight of it. But yet all the sin of all of mankind was upon His shoulders. And the Father rejected the Son, not as rejecting the Son who is perfect and sinless, but as rejecting mankind that He might make the way that we could be forgiven. That divine voice beat. That divine voice spoke. And continued to speak, all things betray thee who betrays me. Everything we trust in. Just look at it. Everything we trust in. So you trust in a person. And that person lets you down. You think your answer is in marriage. And the marriage lets you down. You think that just you, need, you just need another spouse. You just need another, another person in your life. Or you need another job or a little bit more money. And all these things we look at and we seek and we desire and we chase after. And yet every time we get what we think is going to make us happy, it's an illusion. It's just an illusion. And that illusion is gone. And what do we do? We look for another one. We seek after another one because it cannot satisfy. Nothing in this world can satisfy. And God will not let it satisfy those who do not know Him. Because if they find true satisfaction through peace in this world, then they will not look to Jesus ever. So in His loving kindness, He lets us begin to taste the disparity, the pain, the misery of what it is to be without Him. And that whatever He gives does not become good to us. It becomes pain. You see, the source of mankind's pain is running from God. That's what happened in the garden, right? Adam, Eve, sin. God's walking in the garden. says, where are you? Where are you? God knew where they were. God wasn't missing them. They, they didn't know where they were. They didn't understand the circumstances that they were in. And Adam responded, we're over here. We're, we're naked and we wanted to cover our nakedness. Right from the beginning, running from this God, this God that's pursuing Him, even in the garden, running from Him. Fleeing from Him. And that fleeing only made life more miserable, more painful. Here is a life spending, spent running from God. What a worthless life spent running from the one who wants to do them good. Isn't that crazy? All, this God... He doesn't want to take us and abuse us and hurt us. He doesn't have this diabolical idea that comes out of hell. He is good, holy, pure, just, benevolent. He wants to do good to us. And yet we run from Him. We fight against Him. We resist His ways because we think, somehow if I go after what I want and do what I want, I will be happy. Because I don't think God really has the answer for my life. 
And so we're deceived in that very thing. And we continue to pursue other things that cannot ever, that will not ever satisfy. That will never satisfy. One of the verses ends up saying, Across the margins of the world I fled. This man was fleeing as far as he could from God, trying to get as far away as he could. But yet we're told in Scripture, where can you go? You go to the depths of of hell, he's there. You go to the heights of heaven, you go from one end of the earth to the other. There's nowhere you can get away from him. The hound of heaven is there. Fear was not to evade as love was to pursue. Came on the following feet, a voice above their beat. Nothing shelters thee who will not shelter me. Now, those of you who live a little bit more in the country, uh, you might not lock your doors on your house because you feel very secure. Well, I'm from Detroit. And I pastored 12 years in a city, Detroit. And guess what? Nothing's secure. I guarantee you, man, my church has been broken in many times. I mean, anything that was not nailed down, they stole. If they could wiggle into a window that was open this much, you, somehow they would get in. I don't know how they did it. But they'd get in, and then you go in there and everything's gone. It was so crazy. Once I read in the news that somebody's front lawn was even stolen. Their front lawn. I mean, they bought sod. They put the sod down. That night, people came up, rolled all the sod, and took it away. It's crazy. What do we want? We want security. We want a life where where we're not feeling threatened. We're not afraid of somebody breaking in or killing us. Where we feel secure. Where what we begin to trust in has some type of stability. So we want a stable income. We want a stable retirement. We want our life to be stable and none of the problems or anything else. But guess what? Without Him, everything begins to shake underneath our feet. Without Him, everything begins to move. There's nothing stable. There's nothing firm. The only firm thing in all of creation is God. Other than that, everything else is in constant motion, constant moving, constant shaking. Because He has made it so that He must be the rock of our life. Otherwise, this world will not give us anything that will shelter us. So why do we want the shelter? Because we're tired of being hurt. Right? How many of you have been hurt? And how many of us get tired of being hurt? So you know what happens? You build walls. You try to make a safe place in your own little world. Has it ever worked? If you became a hermit and you lived in some remote place all by yourself, you might not be hurt by other people, but you still are surely hurting yourself because you weren't made for that. You see, nothing's going to shelter us if we will not shelter Him. If we'll not give Him the place in our heart and our life that He owns, that He has the right to as Creator God and as Redeemer, if we will not give Him that place, then He will let nothing of this life satisfy. If you labor for sin and reject the truth, you will reap the wages of that. To fight your entire life against God is crazy. You have to fight hard against God to go to hell. You have to fight hard to go to hell. Because God is laboring to keep you from there. 
He doesn't want you there. He doesn't want you to spend an eternity separated from Him. So He is calling you, wooing you, compelling you, letting this world just fall apart underneath you because He wants you to be with Him forever and ever and ever. So you fight against God to go to hell. You fight against God and you resist Him and you make your life more and more miserable and you prepare a way for an eternal place of misery forever without Him because you fight against everything good that He's tried to do. You violate your own conscience. You fight against your own conscience. You know you do wrong and you continue to do it nonetheless. You go down directions that you know are contrary. You resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you continue down it because you are persistent in your rebellion. And yet He keeps speaking. Lifelong wages of sin. Lifelong running from God will ultimately be dealt with at the judgment. To run from Him in this life is to get what you ran from. Separation from Him. You know the tragedy of this poem? The tragedy of it? Thompson wrote such a phenomenal piece on what it is to run from God and then he ran right into hell himself. Never surrendered his life to Christ. Spoke of the pursuit. Spoke of the love of God that pursued. You understand, he didn't speak of this cruel God. There was no concept of this, this terrible God that's making my life miserable. He spoke of this love, this love that was pursuing and this God that was wooing him and calling him. And yet in his persistence, with this knowledge of God pursuing him, he again and again says, no, 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 until eventually he breathed his last. The hound of heaven not only pursues the person that is not a believer, he pursues those who are backsliders. He pursues those who have wandering hearts. The book of Hosea is a very interesting book on this subject. And uh, the theme is about Israel being a spiritual prostitute. So right from the beginning where God calls Hosea to not only be a man that was prophetic, give prophetic words, but to be himself a prophet. And so the Lord told us, go out and marry a prostitute. And everything, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but the whole, the whole plan of it was to show what Israel had become in prostituting herself with the world and sin and rebellion and all this other stuff. And that God would be willing to take her back through repentance. Would be willing to take her back. In Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? Will not Assyria rule over them? Because they refuse to repent. You see, he's not talking here about the heathen nations. He's talking here about Israel that was to be the people of God who had strayed 
so far. Because even as the word came out that God gave through Pastor Jeff, there's a day that it's a cutoff. There's a day that God says, I have pursued you, I pursued you, I pursued you, and you have persistently and consistently rejected me. You see, it's one thing for all your life to reject God. And if you die in that condition, then God will reject you. That's a scary thought. Now, that's not popular today in the American church culture of of weak, wimpy, uh, cheap grace and a watered-down concept of love, but that's the reality of it. He pursues us because He wants us. He doesn't need us. You understand, God does not need you or me. He does not need any man, any of mankind. He does not need angels. He existed before creation of anything. He was fully complete in Himself before creation came to be. He does not need mankind. He didn't create mankind because He was lonely. You understand? He didn't do it for that. He did it for one reason, because it was His good pleasure. That's all we're told in Scripture. It was His good pleasure. He does not need us, but He offers us something better. He wants us. He wants us. He wants us to be sons and daughters. He wants us to know of His tremendous love and of His mercy and kindness. He wants us to know the benefits that come out of that place of loving Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so in this poem, you have the misery of a wandering heart. The misery of lukewarmness. You see, a lukewarm life, a lukewarm Christian is a miserable Christian. They're not happy in the world and they're not happy in Christ. I mean, in between two worlds, even though they are aligned with the world itself, but yet that place of misery, and especially if that Christian has had an experience to taste of God in a great and profound way, and then to turn their back on this God and to become a worldly individual again, they have those memories that are back there. I remember when God touched me. I remember those arms that wrapped around me. I remember His nearness. I remember what He's done. And to be separate from a miserable life, Life of a backslider is a miserable, miserable thing. The stands in the poem says, A voice comes yet more fleet. Lo, nothing contents thee who does not content me. Nothing contents us. Nothing will satisfy us. Nothing. I'm talking about Christians here. I'm talking about people that are backsliders. Nothing will content you when you begin to turn away from Him. Nothing will content you. Nothing. You'll find no contentment. You'll find no peace. You'll find no hope. You'll find nothing in this world. And you can run and run and run as a rebel against God, as a backslider, but you are only going to have more and more of the misery of your backslidings upon you. Nothing will content you, and God is good to keep that from you. He's good to let you have no peace in your life, backslider. He's good because if you had peace in your life, then you would never think of returning home. And so in the story of the prodigal son, what does he do? He goes out there and he thinks he's having a grand old time as he goes and takes his inheritance and squanders it in wickedness. It was just a mask. You understand the money allowed him to pursue pleasure, but the pleasure brought no pleasure. Right? I mean, how many of you understand what I'm talking about here? You live a life for pleasure and there's no pleasure in the pursuit. 
because it's all out of whack. You've made pleasure than the idol of your life. You seek after that. You think that is going to give you what only God can give you. So he takes everything of the pleasure away from it. Nothing will content you until you come and content yourself in Christ, until you content Him, until you come and you bow to His rule, until you give up the rebellion and the lawlessness in your life, until you come home to Jesus. There's no true peace except in Christ. No true peace except in right standing with God, where we are in true fellowship with Him, walking in a way that's pleasing to God. I want you to understand something here. You have to fight really, really hard to backslide. You have to fight against God. You have to fight against the Holy Spirit that's speaking to you, warning you, calling you. You have to fight against the Word of God. Even if you stopped reading the Word, there's Word in you. If you've read it, it's there somewhere, and it's haunting you because you know what you should be and what you are not. You know that you're not living out what you should and you justify the sin that you live and you think it's not that big a thing. Yet nothing will content you because you refuse to content the heart of God that's calling for your return home. Not to hurt you, but to give you life. What do you think? I mean, what do you think in the world? How did I think? I thought that, that this whole party scene was what life was all about. My dad was a cop. I became a criminal. Purposely, I didn't want anything my dad offered. I didn't want what my dad was and, the, and all the, the divorces and remarriages and the misery of that life. I went in the total opposite direction. And guess what? The misery of my sin was just as great as the misery of his sin. Just had different names to it is all. You see, it just gives hopelessness. I didn't know Christ. I didn't know Christ. So in my rebellion, I was a, a lost, totally lost man and didn't understand the pursuit of God. But imagine how agonizing it is for those who have known the love of God and have rejected Him. Backslider, this is a day to run home. And when I open this altar up in a little bit, you need to run to this altar. But I don't want you coming to this altar. I don't want you coming to this altar and pray the prayer you've prayed a zillion times before. I don't want at this altar today some worthless words and promises that have no substance to it. Because if you come to this altar, backslider, if you come to this altar, it is because you are coming and you want a revolution in your life and you will not do what you've been doing all along and the same old thing that keeps you in your backsliding condition. You have to embrace the revolution, the spiritual revolution that Jesus wants to work in your life and you have to allow Him to revolutionize everything about your life. That means if you've got to get rid of your phone, you throw it away immediately. You've got to get rid of the internet. You've got to get rid of everything in your life. It doesn't matter. You cut off everything that you might secure your eternal soul in a right place with God. That's a serious thing. And so in your backslidden condition, you have fought hard. You have fought hard to be in that backslidden condition. You have resisted God again and again and again and again. And what has it gotten you? Misery, sorrow, pain. Hopelessness, despair, depression, addiction to sin, bondage, chains, misery. He's calling you to run home. When we look at the Christian, though, we can't really look at the hound of heaven. 
not the same picture. You see, the picture of the hound of heaven is for those who have never known Christ, or those who are backslidden. When we enter into that place of fellowship with God, everything changes, everything. Everything, even how He deals with us. And so I think the only picture that is fitting is of the lover that perseveres or pursues the beloved. The bridegroom who is pursuing his bride. You see, God is relentlessly pursuing his people. And you may be at a spot in your Christianity and you're going, man, it's just dry, it's hard, and I don't see where God's pursuit is, but I guarantee you his pursuit is there more than you can understand because he is trying to get you from a place of where you're at right now into a deeper, richer place of fellowship and surrender to him where there's greater joy and greater peace and greater power to do the work of God. Song of Solomon is a difficult book. We could think of it as a, as a play. And uh, in the play, you have, a, you know, just not many people in it. You have the lover that is represents Jesus. You have the beloved that represents the church. And you have the friends that represent the world. And it's this dialogue. And the whole thing that goes on in this in this whole play is the pursuit of of the bride, the pursuit of the bride, the, the how the, the groom he's been engaged to her. Not, you know, you can approach the Song of Solomon as that they're married or that they're engaged, and I believe that they're engaged. Um, so that's how I, I personally take it. It's not a big deal one way or the other. It changes a few of the dynamics of it. But, um, you know, here's the lover. Here's Christ seeking after his church wanting his church, pursuing her, and realizing in his church is such shallowness. And he wants this woman that he is going to marry, as we sung about the glorious appearing of Christ. He wants this bride to be beautiful. To be beautiful, and not talking about physical beauty, but in who she is. And to become a woman that is a fit bride to marry. Because Jesus said he's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle, a beautiful bride, a bride that is ready. And so he's laboring to that end in our lives. And those who are true followers of Jesus, laboring to make us beautiful. So that when he comes back, we are ready, we're waiting, we're in expectation, we're yearning, longing for that. And so you have this progression in the Song of Solomon that I want to just touch on here. So you have in the beginning... In chapter 2, verse 16, the Christian, the beloved, ends up making a statement. My lover is mine, and I am his. You know what's kind of interesting with this? And it's said like this on purpose. It is very purposeful. This isn't time and chance. This is very purposeful. She is basically saying, well, you know, I want my life. I want to live my way, and I'll let Jesus be a little addition to it. Okay? That's all this is. I'm, I'm number one. And God exists to make me happy. Well, at least she's coming to the place to be a spouse to Jesus. At least she's come there. But she is selfish, self-absorbed, and she is seeking to keep control of her life. That's a sad thing when we try to keep control of our life. Why, Why do we keep control of our life? Well, because we're stubborn and proud. I mean, but we think we know better than God. So we want control of our life because we think this is what's going to make me happy. This, 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 this. And God, if you want to give them to me, great. If not, I'm going to get in my own way. And so we become rebels against them. Though we're supposed to be his bride, we're still rebelling against him. 
So we work hard to keep control of our life. You understand, as Christians, we have to fight against God that is calling us to surrender. We have to resist Him that is compelling us to give up the control because this God knows better than we do what is really needed in our life. But we think we know better than God. Instead of just coming to the place, say, God, I give up, I yield, I know you are such a good Father. You, are, you, do, you do right all the time. God, when I get control of my life, I make a mess of it because I do wrong. I don't know how to do it right, God. I just want to give up. I am just, just want to surrender. Just want to surrender because I'm tired of the fighting. He's working to that end. He's trying to bring us to the place where we grow up, where we see that Jesus is worth the pursuit, that he's worth the pursuit, that he's worth giving up absolutely everything in this world. But most Christians really don't understand what I said there, and they might think I'm a little crazy. I guess we have to decide who's crazy, what's God saying or what the world's saying, or even what the lukewarm church is saying, and I happen to think God is the only sane one in all of creation. (laughs) I think one of the verses in that poem kind of fits. Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou drove love from me, who drove me away. What an astounding statement. The very thing we want, the thing we ache for, we yearn to be loved, right? Every one of us, we yearn to be loved. The single one, they're looking for that person that will really meet their needs. They get married and it doesn't do it, so they look for another person, another person, always wanting this place to be loved, that they're felt important, and yet the whole time they're, they're fighting against the lover of their soul that will love them like they've never known, like they've never experienced, if they would but stop fighting and resisting, if they would just come to the place to give up and to yield and say, God, I am weary of me. I'm weary of this fight. I just want to surrender. And then you begin to surrender and you start finding the wonder and the beauty and the joy of His love, and you find that His love is worth giving up everything for. Thou drove love from Thee who drove away me. And so you can go and drive away Jesus by picking up your phone and going where you ought not to be. You understand? You drive the one who loves you Like you can't even imagine and fathom, you drive him away because you want what is forbidden. And you think it's not a big deal to go after what is forbidden. I don't care whatever it might be that's forbidden. What's forbidden is forbidden. And he forbids it not because he's a mean God trying to keep what is good from us, but because he's a God that's trying to save us from our self-destruction. He's trying to save us from abusing ourselves with going into sin and getting so trapped by it that now we're a slave to sin. And it is defining our life, ruining us, and eventually taking us away from Christ. Love, the very thing we crave, we are so quick to drive from us, to push away from us. And then you know what's so strange? We drive Him away, we push Him away. And then we get angry at God because we start reaping what we're sowing. Get angry at Him. Why aren't you blessing me? Why aren't you doing these things in my life? So I'll let nothing content you if you will not content me. I'll let nothing in your life bring happiness if you will not bring yourself to the place of true surrender to me. You drove love from you. 
And then you wonder why you don't feel any love in your life. You pushed it away. You drove it away. You didn't want it. And now you're angry at me that after you drove it away that it's not there. But in the story of Song of Solomon, there's some growing up. She does some growing, some painful process of it. I'm not going to go through all of that. It comes out interesting in chapter 5, where she becomes so lackadaisical about the her bridegroom coming that she just won't even get out of bed when he starts knocking on the door, wanting to spend time with her. He was yearning for her just to sit and look in her eyes and to talk. The lover wanting time with his beloved, just wanting to, to speak with her for a little bit, and she wouldn't even get out of bed. And finally, when she gets out of bed, he's gone. He's gone. He's not there. And so what does she do? She finally awakens from her selfish slumber. And she begins to pursue Jesus, begins to pursue the lover, going here and there, looking wherever she can. And she is even even willing then to be beaten because it says, the watchmen on the walls, they beat me. Even then willing, it doesn't matter now. I realize what I've lost because I've given up so much. I pushed away love, and now I realize that love is what I needed, what I want, what I longed for. It is the absolute best thing for me. And so in chapter 6, verse 3, she ends up saying, I am my lover's and my lover's mine. You know what she's done here? She's made at least them equals. Prior to it, she was above. Okay, I'm the head. All right, Jesus, you're here to serve. Now, okay, now let's just kind of be equals here. And, and, you know, her surrender's a little deeper, but she's still full of self. She's still consumed with herself. And if you were to look at this, and there's three stages. So we'll look at the final stage in just a couple minutes. But you look at these three stages. The first stage is the majority of the American church. All right, the, those who are, I'm talking about those who are true Christians. That's the majority of them, a very shallow place of their faith, where they never grow, they never mature, so they never do much for the kingdom of God. Life is all about them, and they want Jesus to bless them and make them happy. Now, when you get to the second stage, there's fewer people. They're at the place where at least saying, okay, we're kind of equal. Let's just, just kind of take this together type of thing. And we're good buddies type of deal. A little maturing, but still self central to the life still all about her just imagine a family dad comes home from a hard day of work comes in the home and the wife just tries to have dinner ready when he gets home and so he comes in cleans up a little bit they sit down to the table and and so here you got the kids there and there's this four-year-old little boy among among the children and all of a sudden, Junior just ends up speaking up and says, Dad, um, I'm going to go get a job. Dad, you're going to get a job? Why are you going to get a job? Well, I don't think you're going to take care of me right anymore. I don't think you're going to continue to put a roof over my head or that you're going to continue to put food on my table or clothes on my back. So I've got to go out and get a job because you are not going to be faithful. Well, son, have I ever not been faithful? Have I, not, have I ever kept food from you? Have I ever not sheltered you and clothed you? Is it, can you give it? I, I just believe you're not going to do it. Just not going to do it. So I need to take care of myself. Isn't that a ridiculous idea? But isn't that what the majority of Christians are at? Isn't that what we still strive to do? It says, well, I have a better plan. I know how to do it. I'll take care of myself because you're not going to somehow do it. Uh, child, don't you realize I take care of the sparrows? <laughs> 
you know, and you're of more value than them? Don't you realize? How long have you been with me and you are still struggling whether I'm going to really take care of you, whether I really love you or not? How long do we have to keep going through the broken record of it? Does God really love me? Does He really care? Is He really going to take care of me? How long do we have to go through the broken record until we finally come to the place and say, God, I've got to just grab hold of your promise and believe the truth of who you are. Now we come to a place of maturity. Chapter 7, verse 10. And she says, I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. You understand, me is not in the center anymore. I belong to Him. And I know that He is going to do me good. Because that's who He is. He is going to take care of me. He's going to provide for me. He will do everything that's necessary to bring me all the way home. Because He's good. I have come to the place and understand who this one who loves me. And I understand and now I'm beginning to enjoy the place of resting. Of that place of just just knowing I am taken care of by one that is infinitely powerful, who loves me completely, perfectly, and loves me even infinitely. This is true spiritual maturity where Jesus becomes all in all. And you know, it's, it's so strange. Those, those who begin to move to this third category are the fewest in the church. And not many get there. Not that they can't. God wants all of them, all the church, to be there in this place where they are just selflessly serving Jesus, adoring Him, loving Him, but they don't want to give up self. They don't want to give up their own ambitions and their own dreams and their own ideas. So they continue obstinately in that same thing. And they miss out everything of what it is that Jesus offers right here. And they may even look at those who have come to the place where Jesus becomes all in all and says, man, that's a little fanatical. And you know what Jesus says? That's biblical. Right? That's what I created you to be. I didn't create you for sin. I didn't create you for self. I didn't create you for rebellion. I created you for me. I created you that everything in your life is about me. And that in me you find your joy, your peace, your purpose, everything. Not that you do it in your own life, in your own way, through your own will. That is all rebellion against me. And those who begin to understand this life of wanting Jesus to be all in all begin to taste of the peace and the joy and the wonder of the nearness. And they find that it's worth it all. This is faith in action that finally believes that God is going to do what He said He will do and is who He said He is. You understand? This is a huge part of this is faith. To believe that He really is who He said He is and will do what He said. We can go and say, oh yeah, amen, I believe that. But does our life prove that we're at that place that we believe God in such a way? That we are willing to trust Him to such an extent? This is the selfless pursuit of Christ, who is seeking Him and not what He has. That's a whole different thing, because we can make so much of the Christian life about seeking what I want out of Him, rather than seeking Him. And you see, that's the prize, seeking Him. And if you get Him, you get everything that He is, and He'll give you what is good and right and for your well-being. You see, we get it all wrong. We think we've got to seek after what's going to make us happy, our own personal happiness. You see, that's an idol in America. It's an idol in the American church, this idol of happiness, that it's all about me. I should be happy. I deserve to be happy. So you know how many marriages fall apart because one spouse or the other says, I deserve to be happy and I'm not happy with that spouse. So they get a divorce. They rebel against God, the will of God. 
they rebel against God, and they think then that they're going to be happy, so they go to another marriage, and it falls apart as well. Why? Because they never deal with the ugly self. They never deal with the reality of sin that's inside of them. They don't deal with what's going on, and so they continue to run and to run and to run. And the whole time, they're missing it all. See, this is what we were created for. Whether you know the will of God and anything else in your life, in one sense, doesn't matter. Because if you know the will of God in this, and you begin to live in hot pursuit of Him where He's the prize, everything else will begin to find its proper place. But if you don't, you'll just be seeking your own will, your own wants, and find that none of it will content you. None of it will give you what you want. And so out of this, out of this where she can say, I belong to my lover, now she can finally say something that is astounding. And you know, it's so strange because this is used in marriages all the time. They, use, they put this in marriages and people never take the time to understand what is being said here. Because it sounds pretty and noble, but they don't comprehend how radical it is. Chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. You see, what he's talking about here is not the earthly love between a man and woman that is to be very fulfilling and have its right place, but it is ultimately the love that's to be for God and man, where we begin to pursue Him and know the wonder of that relationship, and that relationship begins to define everything about us. This is what we were created for. Set a seal upon my heart. I belong to you. I'm yours now. I'm yours I don't want to be the world's anymore. I don't want to be the devil's. I don't even want to be myself anymore. I want to be yours. I want you to own me and lead me and guide me because I know you do it right every single time. Stalin had taken control of Russia brought his communism to the people and ruined a nation. In the 1930s, there was a purging of Bibles from Russia, and specifically from Stravopol. And so in the purging of Bibles, there was also the purging of Christians, and so it was a time of terrible persecution against the true church, and people went to prison and were never seen again, and all the Bibles were, were confiscated and put into storage someplace, nobody knew at the time where. Time goes on, and then you have the fall, the Berlin fall, Wall falls down, and Russia begin to collapse. And when the collapse happens, then all of a sudden missionaries could get into Russia where they couldn't get in. They were having a terrible time getting in before. And so mission organizations are coming in to Russia. And a group came into Stravopol. And, uh, you know, the people were just hungry. They've been, the gospel had been kept from them so long other than what was underground. 
that now that it was open and it was available, they were flocking to it. They wanted it, and people wanted Bibles, and, and they didn't have Bibles. They couldn't get Bibles in fast enough. And so one of the officials of the city ended up saying, well, back in the 30s, they confiscated all the Bibles, but for some reason they didn't destroy them. They're in a warehouse, and I know where they are. He says, why don't you get some day workers, and we'll get some trucks, and meet us over that at this particular warehouse, and, and uh, we'll get the Bibles for you. So there's, there's this young man, and he was full-blown communist. He was in college, just you know, wanting to go with the whole communist theme and everything of Russia, and he wanted to have success in Russia and the communist government and all that. And, you know, so he's immersed completely in, in this idea of atheism because, you know, communism is a total, complete atheistic religion. And uh, so he comes out there just to, he accepts the, the day job to gather up the Bibles, to put them in, in the, uh, the trucks, and then to pass them out. He didn't. He could care less. You know, he was. He had to have money for school and for food and that there, and, and that's all that he cared about because life was being very hard at that time. And so he's in there loading up Bibles into the truck, and all of a sudden the guy is, goes missing, and the people start looking for him, and they find him in a corner somewhere, weeping. Out of all the Bibles, out of all the Bibles that they had confiscated and all the Christians that went into prison and were unheard of again, he came across his grandma's Bible. He just happened to take a Bible and open it up and there was his grandma. She was taken, never seen again. The hound of heaven pursuing him, the hound of heaven wanting him to run home. Placing a Bible at the right place at the right time so that this boy might see the reality of a God that was pursuing him. If you are not walking with Jesus, He is pursuing you right now. He is pursuing you right now. If you're a backslider, He is pursuing you. He's pursuing you. You, you are brought to a place, a decision. You're either going to accept or reject Jesus. You're either going to embrace this, the hound of heaven that's nipping at your heels to bring you to the foot of the cross that you might find freedom and liberty, or you're going to reject him, and you're going to drive him from you, and you're going to say another time, no, I don't want you. I'm going to live my life my way. I don't want your interference. Leave me alone. And there may be the time that your prayer to God for him to leave you alone is answered. And you should fear that day. You should fear the day where He stops answering, stops pursuing you. Because that's when He has said, enough. Enough. But that's not the day today. The opportunity is offered to you. The hound of heaven is pursuing you. Are you going to run home to Him? Are you going to run home to Him today? Are you going to finally say, I am so weary of my sin. I'm so weary of everything I touch just bringing pain and misery and sorrow to me. I'm, I'm tired of every relationship I've had that just ends up being miserable. Are you going to run home to Him realizing that He won't let anything in your life satisfy you? And He's offering you now the only place where you can truly find joy and peace and true satisfaction of life and soul? That it's in Him? Are you going to run to Him, backslider? Are you going to run home to Him? 
and radically abandon your sin and your rebellion and all that you practice and all the things that you have done to let Him revolutionize your life and no place for compromise then. You see, you keep compromising because you keep opening the door because you refuse to cut off everything. You refuse to do it God's way. You want to keep a little bit of the world in your life, but you, it keeps taking you away from Jesus. Are you going to really come? He is pursuing you. He is pursuing you. Are you really going to come home? You've got to let go of your pride. You've got to let go of your fear of man, which is pride. You've got to let it go. And you've got to be willing to respond. There is a God that's calling you, compelling you to come to this altar. And I'm going to open it up in just a moment. And you need to lay aside your pride. You need to lay aside what people think of you. And one thing should be on your mind. Only one thing. I must get right with Him. I must get right with Him. I must get my life right. Would everybody please stand?